Hello, and welcome to Busy Minds Podcast. It's been two months and 13 days since I last recorded and published a podcast. I hope you forgive me. Thank you. All right. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited to do this. And Merry Christmas in advance, in case you are listening to this. Merry Christmas in advance. I am really, really extremely excited to run through some topics I have in mind. Most of them I have already released as either blog posts or newsletters or maybe uh, tweets. Um, I'll tell you one of which I'm particularly excited. The case for incest. Uh, it was a really, it was a prophetic moment. It was a prophetic moment. But we'll get to the matter soon. Thank you for joining me on Busy Minds Podcast. I hope you have a blast. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I do. So, shall we begin? Don't ever take a fence down until you know the reason why it was put up. GK Chesterton. All started Chesterton's fence. Chesterton uh, was a journalist, philosopher, theologian, novelist, essayist, very brilliant man. Um, I think I particularly like him because he's he was a Christian, he was a Christian philosopher, a commentator. So I, I think that's why he has my attention, just like C.S. Lewis does. So um, G.K. Chester wrote that don't ever take a fence down until you know the reason why it was put up. So we'll start with Chesterton's fence. You can find the link to Chesterton's fence, my newsletter. Uh, if you, of course, if you have subscribed, it's in your email. So what is Chesterton's fence? Uh, it is a simple mental model that says if you don't know why something was there or so, why something is there, why something was instituted, maybe you should be a little more careful before taking it down. And I find this really, really relevant because there were many things or there are many things in my life I wish were not there. And I'm sure it's the same for many people as well. You just wish some things were not there. I will start with this very, very simple example. Um, I know a lot of my classmates who will, who really wish that we never took some subjects, some subjects like maybe mathematics, further maths, and some other subjects. So Nigerian students will complain a lot that, see, all these things they are loading us with in school, they are not relevant for what we want to eventually become in life. Probably someone wants to become a footballer, another wants to be a musician, another one wants to be a painter, a novelist wants many different things and you just look at some of the things on your syllabus on your curriculum and you're like these things are not essential for my career they're not they're not important to what i want to be uh so if given the power i'd rather just take them out but chesterton is warning that well maybe you should calm down don't rush don't be in a hurry to take a fence down unless you know why it was put up so don't be in a hurry to abolish mathematics, to abolish English, to abolish uh, geography, economics, and something you feel is an obstruction or you think is useless. So don't be in a hurry to take it down. Understand why it was there in the first place. I'm not here to explain 
why the things are there. There are many things you can apply Chesterton's fence to. But simply take it as this. If you find anything in your way that seems like an obstruction, especially when that thing has been there for a long time, maybe uh, a family tradition, um, some cultural norm, some practice, don't be in a hurry to take it down. Don't be in a hurry to tear down the wall. Um, take your time to study and ask why it is there. If eventually you find out that it is irrelevant, please, by all means, demolish it, tear it down. But don't be in a hurry to take a fence down until you know why it was put up. So I find Chesterton's fence really, really relevant because uh, for someone who is a dilettante and or student of human nature, I find out that uh, there are a lot of things I would like to pull down myself personally. And then there are these sets of people, you know, the progressives. You might not the progressives who will really try to take down anything anything so first of all i don't like feminists no i don't no th that came out wrong not like i don't like feminists i like everybody yeah as christ said we should but i i'm anti-feminist i've made that very clear it's not something I'm, i hide anymore um so yeah so i think one of the central enemies the central boogeyman of feminism is the patriarchy so it'd be like anything is patriarchy, kakaka patriarchy, say one to say one to patriarchy, everything boils down to patriarchy. And things like ideologies like feminism and its many, many spawns, or let's say Marxism and its many spawns, uh, will always try to take down as many fences as it can. So for a case like that, Chesterton's fence is a need for you not to just run head on into something you don't like uh, a lot of people will be like i don't like something so abolish it abolish it um i found school uniforms to be uncomfortable because in, in secondary school to be precise because my uniforms were not fitting i was very small so my uniforms were always very large so i really wish that ah or more they, they should just be letting us wear mufti you know abolish the concept of school uniforms i didn't like it so there's this infantile urge this petulance to want to take down anything for the sole reason of us not liking it, it doesn't matter whether that thing serves a good purpose or not we just want to take it down because we don't like it it is something that is um very common in human nature that we don't like something especially on an individual level and we want to take it down on a collective level it's very possible that you don't have preference for something, but there's a reason why it is there. So you must be careful. And this is where Chesterton's fence comes in. If you don't like something on the personal level, fine, no problem. But find out why it is there in the first place before you attempt to take it down. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of things people would like to take down, but they really do not have a replacement. You cannot... You cannot attempt to abolish certain systems and norms and leave it empty. You know, they say nature doesn't abhor, I mean, doesn't, I mean, nature abhors a vacuum, something like that. So I find out that most of the, most of the systems or setups that always try to f destroy Christianity, to be precise now, and try to replace Christianity with something else, the replacements are always so par. They never do the good job of 
what Christianity has done. Yes, you can point to the many flaws of Christians over time, but Christianity in its ideal sense has, not even in the most ideal sense, in the most practical sense, has uh, established stability in many ways. Uh, so, for example, Christianity says, marry, it's one man, one wife. Uh, and then you have this Marxist set of you know, sexual ethics that comes and says you can have polyamory and just introduces this lots and lots of abominable uh, sexual ethics, which tears, it destroys uh, the fabric of human relationship, essentially. So I will always prepare what I have, what is on ground now. It might not be the best. This is the thing with Chesterton's friends. It might not be the best, but you should be careful while taking it down. Because in a practical world, in an unideal world, the things that work the most are not exactly the best. But they're just the, they just work the most, sadly. So that's the thing about Chesterton's fence. Don't be in a hurry to take down a fence. You don't know why it was put up in the first place. Before you think of removing or abolishing something, ask yourself, why such a thing is there at all? Even better, meditate to know if you have a suitable replacement. Don't abolish it in a hurry. Be guided. All right, so moving on. Um, next, we'll talk about unattractive figures. Um, okay, so my intent for writing this, of course, I published it as a newsletter as well. My intent for writing this piece was very simple. Um, I can anchor it back to a mental model called the McNamara fallacy. So the McNamara fallacy says, uh, so, yeah, the McNamara fallacy states that if it is not important, if it cannot be measured, simple as ABC, if it cannot be measured, it is not important. So it says um, whatever can be measured is what counts and whatever does not, whatever cannot be measured does not count. So it's relying on metrics to know what is important or not. So unattractive figures yes a little bit modified but it starts from a simple premise like the mcnamara fallacy uh the first problem i have with the mcnamara fallacy is that there are things you practically cannot measure yet it does not make them unimportant so but i delve into unattractive figures by saying that some things although can be measured do not look attractive and sensational enough to be considered important. So, let me make the distinction. In McNamara fallacy, it says if it cannot be measured, it is not important. But in unattractive figures, I say that um, it can be measured, but it is not as important because it, it does not look sensational or alarming or attractive enough. Yes, that's the basic concept. So, you, you, you must understand that um, science and statistics and mathematics we have come a long way and i applaud everyone involved for that it is commonplace now to represent issues of the human condition with data and statistical figures uh, this is important for collective analysis of problems which affect human beings so that we can you know obtain solutions and formulate policies you can look at data now and say okay this was happening this was happening um 41 percent of 
the women in Nigeria are entrepreneurs, 41%. Yes, that's the recent data I just saw, um, just absent-mindedly. And the comment on it says 41% of women being entrepreneurs in Nigeria is not a good thing. But that's not what I'm here to say. So it is important to point out these unattractive figures, you know, and the McNamara fallacy because there is a mistake we keep making. And it's the qualitative versus quantitative mistake, which I think I have also pointed out somewhere in a newsletter titled The Quantitative Mind. But understand something. Figures, data, statistics, they are effective because they point us to urgent matters that require swift and often innovative solutions. But I take personal grouse with it because it has largely replaced philosophical speculations in the mainstream. So there are some things that you cannot exactly capture by data. It's the truth. You cannot exactly just put them on paper, represent them by figures, pie charts, bar charts, and your graphs, your regular graphs. There are some things you only can capture by philosophical speculations. But I realize that philosophical speculations is receding from the mainstream because data and statistics, yes, they definitely look more attractive. It is easier to just look at a bar chart, interpret it, than to start thinking and having to form um, logical essays on why something is something. Speculation is not as attractive as pure statistical empiricism. It's a fact. So, um, while I applaud the application of mathematics and statistics in mapping out and figuring the human condition, some of the problems or some of the improvements are visible in areas like IQ testing. You can test for IQ. I don't trust the test. Uh, public education, you can find out why students are not you know, doing well, public health, transport system, housing, generally the economy. These things, you can figure them out using data, mass, and statistics. Summary, the benefit of statistical measurement and data representation is the way data brings to life, out of the abstract, the problems of the human condition. So some things are, the abstract things are not exactly easy to represent. So when you represent them in data, you do not have to go to the stress of, you know, fleshing or concretizing the abstract. Data already does that for you. What philosophy guesses about data makes certain. It makes objective and factual what mass speculation classifies as subjective. But let's go into the main matter. So I've experienced, it's not, I've experienced two viral outbreaks or three, but I'm going to focus on two. Two viral uh, outbreaks. Um, Ebola fever, the Ebola virus, and COVID. So um, I was quite younger when I saw the Ebola, and I was scared. Ebola really scared me, especially when I saw the hemorrhaging part, where you just bleed out of your eyes, nose, and body. It was really scary. So Ebola was scary. And then I know a lot of people who were scared, and we, we, but we went about our normal lives just taking precautions. My own precaution was that I always wore long sleeves. When Ebola was in town, so that you know, someone's body fluid doesn't touch my body, stuff like that. So that was my precaution against Ebola. But COVID came around, and like never before, we saw COVID. COVID was scary. I was scared. But I think what scared me most about COVID was not the symptoms COVID presented, but the way people were dying from COVID, and it was easily represented on TV. So just you know. I mean, Nigeria, NCDC puts out the number of deaths, the number of hospitalizations, number of um, active cases. And it was really scary seeing the numbers going up every day, every day. That's what data can do to your mind. 
as on the, it's statistical empiricism. You can see it, you can observe it. So it has a direct effect on your senses. It has a direct effect effect on your cognition. Of course, I knew people died from COVID, but what made it more scary was that I saw the numbers going up. But here's the thing: the people who died from COVID were not people. Oh, I didn't see them as people. I saw them as numbers. That was a difference. Um, so going on, um, I just use uh, Ebola and you know COVID as a distinction. In Ebola, I was scared because I knew the symptoms of Ebola, the hemorrhaging specifically, the bleeding out of body was what made it scary. And for COVID, the rising number made it scary. Yeah, it's a fact for me. So um, then the second thing you need to understand about data is people glorify data a lot. We say numbers don't lie. Numbers don't lie. The numbers don't lie. Okay, yeah, well, let's assume numbers don't lie. But I say they don't tell the whole story. Numbers don't lie, but they don't tell the whole story. It's Numbers don't lie is a common and familiar claim. But it's not something I'm willing to go with. I quote a Twitter dude, Sadixin with RL10. It says, stats are like mini skits. They don't show everything. They don't show everything. So, um... As data and statistical evidence becomes more and more mainstream, it becomes the more popular, more acceptable way of presenting evidence. And I hardly have any problem with it in most cases, except that we love the data and refuse to accept that it is inadequate in terms of describing the human condition. Now, follow this analogy or this example I'm trying to make. This is football as an example. Football statistics records in a match that player X, a central midfielder, plays 25 accurate passes. That he made 25 passes, he attempted 25 passes and made 25 passes. Then we also have player Y, who is also a central midfielder in the same match, who attempted 14 passes, but only six out of the 14 passes were successful. On, on, on paper, data on paper shows that player X is the better passer, while player Y is a poor passer. He doesn't know how to pass the ball. He's a freak, a negative freak. And in central midfield, just take him to the bench or something. So, but if you watched the, the match and didn't rely on goal.com or live scores or something like that, and you watched the match for its full duration, you may notice a difference that player X made only side passes, back passes, and short passes with no advancing passes. Maybe player X was always maybe two feet away from another player and he made you know those kind of passes, very short passes. No, no one can interfere and he made no advancing passes he made side passes and back passes passes that you know very easy passes then you watch player y player y made long passes advancing passes and of the six su successful passes one was crucial to their winning goal now you will realize that in that match player y was the better player but if you were to rely on the data Without seeing out the full length of the match, you'll be fooled into believing that X is a better player than Y. Numbers don't tell the full story. At times you have to watch the whole thing, watch the whole process, and don't rely on the numbers. I think it was uh, Adoten Hag, the manager of Ajax, that said data or stats are important for football, but I prefer to use my own eyes. Thank you, Ten Hag. So, 
having moved on from the analogy of player X and player Y, there are happenings within the human race that can never be captured with numbers. And that's when McNamara fallacy comes in, in saying that if, if it's not measurable, if you cannot measure it, it's not important. There are things that cannot be measured with numbers, with exact numbers. Even if you're able to capture it in numbers one way or the other, they can never tell the full story. And the full story is important to, uh, say, preparing a solution. The realm of man is highly subjective. Yes, uh, this point is very crucial. If you are studying animals, plants, things that are, um, or maybe things that are inanimate, black holes, gravity, stuff, stuff like that, you can easily capture them. But not with human beings, because human beings are highly subjective. I don't know what someone else is thinking. And someone else's thought pattern, his thought process, his motives, his next line of action, someone who has free will, I can't predict. Prediction, especially economic prediction, is hard because human beings are free and human beings can make any unprecedented move that changes the whole game. Living in a, in a society is not like chess. Chess has defined rules. You cannot play outside those rules. So that means of all the possible moves in a chess game on a chessboard, they are predictable, they are finite, they are definite. But the human moves, real-life moves, society moves, it's not like chess. Human decisions are infinite. The, you don't know what next a human being can do. You can take all possible precautions while going out with your car today and still die by an accident because there are realms outside your control. So that's the realm of man. Man's realm is highly subjective. We can only control so little. And these things are mostly obscure from, from visible perception to be represented in data. So that's the limitation. So while we celebrate mathematicians, computer scientists, and physicists, <coughs> we should not fail to consider the novelists, philosophers, and clergies of various religions. They stand in different spheres with the same purpose, the betterment of man. So you look at mathematicians as brilliant. Oh, one equation changed the world forever. Einstein. Computer scientists, programming, yeah, physicists, yeah, rockets. But novelists and philosophers do not get that much acclaim because what they do is not exactly as measurable as a physicist. A physicist will always have more prestige than a philosopher because he feels like, in quotes, he's doing real science and he's doing something more important. But I'm not here to advocate for philosophers. Anyways, let them get out. So... This is the reason why we celebrate novelists, because they describe the qualitative nature of man, which is the emotional, the fearful, the loving, the proud, the paranoid being. Pride. How much of pride can you capture in numbers? How much of love can you capture in numbers? How much of fear can you capture in numbers? You can capture the phenomenon, but you cannot capture the motion. You cannot capture the next moment. You cannot predict. Novelists, philosophers are the ones who paint the, co the complexity that exists in human nature, the three-dimensional creature that longs for more than numbers can bear. Now let's look at the dangers of exaggerated quantity and unattractive figures. Now this is the crux of the matter, the crux, the crux. Wow, for real, I don't know how that is pronounced. But here we go. So unattractive figures come in where... Um, there is a measurement and there's under measurement 
and one measurement is not attractive as the next so the first measurement or the unattractive figure gets silent and this is an example 90% of the murderers are men example one data summary 90% of the murderers are men the natural inference goes men make up most of the murderers so you say not all men counts for nothing Ninety percent of men are murderers, so the other ten percent are women, obviously, or maybe from the other one hundred and twelve genders as we have now. But nobody ever gets to say ninety percent of murderers are men. Okay, what about the ten percent of murderers who are women or maybe dogs or something else? What about them? See, they are not attractive. They are not sensational. Yeah, they are not sensational. They really they serve no reporting purpose. How how does it feel on the news when it's being reported? Ten percent of murderers are men. Oh, sorry, are women, compared to saying ninety percent of murderers murderers are men. So the ten percent of women being murderers is unattractive compared to the ninety percent of murderers. But here's the problem. To someone whose brother or sister was murdered by a woman, your statistics does not count. <clears throat> I hope you get. So, um, someone who was killed by a lady, of course, of which women make 10% of murderers, has no business with such data that 90% of murderers are men because anecdotally or subjectively the person who murdered um, his or her family member was a lady see the thing is when real life events strike data becomes less important when people are in their moments of grief when people are in moments of um, happiness extreme happiness when people are having real human moments no one stops to calculate the numbers unless you're autistic. No one stops to calculate the numbers and show you the figures. Unless, of course, the figures are directly correlated to your situation. Maybe an increase in salary or increase in revenue or something you know, in a company. But we're talking about experiencing uh, childbirth. Nobody comes and starts quoting data and figures and asking sources. Where is your source? Citation needed. And stuff like that. When, of course, 90% of murderers are men. But, of course, when tragedy strikes and the murderer is a woman nobody cares whether it's 10 percent or 90 percent all i know is that there's a murderer on the loose and i want justice so of course data is great on collective grounds but not on individual grounds and the moment we start letting you know the effect of data creep into the fabric of genuine humanity we might have a problem and the problem is utilitarianism course screw you john bentham so i'm not saying utilitarianism is you know, not bad but what i'm saying is this yeah if you know the trolley problem there are six people on the lane on it on, on a rail and uh, there's another one person on a rail and there's a train coming how do you divert the train or how do you divert the trolley the trolley problem just google it the trolley problem utilitarianism so let's go to the second example mm, um <clears throat> 
3% of people who received the vaccines reported adverse effects. So the inference goes, well, 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 just 3%. That means the vaccines are safe. Enforce the vaccines, an emphasis on enforce. Um, of course, 3% to 97%. If 97% of people find the vaccines to be safe, well, the 3% are dispensable. You know, it's just 3%. You understand that? Please enforce the vaccines and anyone who refuses to take the vaccine, take his job, take his life, take his wife, take everything he has, make him lose, make his life miserable. Because, well, 97% is safe. 97% is a safe margin. But that's just stupid. Because you are not sure that you cannot be among the 3%. What are the conditions, what are the factors that make me know that I'm not among the 3% who will um, experience the adverse effects of those vaccines? And that, this is the central point of unattractive figures. Because 3% to 97%, 3% is unattractive, 3% does not make for the news, 3% is not sensational. And if it's not sensational, it's easily dismissible. But one thing you'll be forgetting is that you'll be dismissing real people in in the advent of you um, trying to prop up numbers or look great. So if the vaccine is safe for 97% of people, what about the remaining 3%? The remaining 3% is made up of people who might just stroll into a center, receive their vaccines, and in the night they are dead. Do you ever come to think of that? No. When, when we make data the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the all and all of measurement, the all and all of what counts, uh, the all and all of what is important, then we reduce people to numbers. We do not represent individual human conditions. We lump everybody together and just let whatever happens, happens. It's a road to cruelty. It's technocracy. It's a world you don't want to eat. A utilitarian world is not a world you want to live in. Because at the moment where you are found on the side of the unattractive figures, you are toast. You are gone. That's the disadvantage of living in a utilitarian world. The day you are found among the dismissible set of numbers, your life ceases to count. And I hope, and I hope you don't get to live in such a world. So every man is an individual, a living, deserving entity. And this is the basis of all human rights. The inalienableness in of each man deserving of dignity. But when we lump all men into numbered categories, ask oxen of the greater good, robbed of their complexity, subjective perceptions and reality, then we head speedily to the end. A bad end, an end to humanity. So, the conclusion to unattractive figures goes thus. Bring back good qualitative arguments. Bring man back to life again. Withdraw him from the realm of numbers. Let us do this again, man to man. And in the final moments of this podcast, which most likely is the last for the year, of which I expect to release my review soon, take this quote. But in Hustley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. So, yeah, this is a quote from Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And um, he spoke 
or he wrote about he wrote about he distinguished between Orwell's vision and Huxley's vision. It was a great book. The preface was mind blowing. He said this was how the preface ended. This book is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. So I had a discussion, brief discussion on Twitter this morning with a friend, and we're talking about trade-offs. And I said, for every measure of progress that humanity records, we give something, we give off, we give up something essential for every measure of progress. For every measure of progress, we give up something essential. It's the simple concept of trade-offs. We cannot have it all. And when he asked me to mention one of the most significant trade-offs we have made in years, I said maybe we have traded off um, rigorous thinking, especially logic, for decentralized publishing. So decentralized publishing is good. Everybody can own a blog, a website. You don't have to go through central uh, publishing modes like journals, you know, journalism and, and the likes. You don't have to go through all, all that. But the disadvantage is that the rigor is reduced and we have, we are riddled now with excessive um, medioc mediocrity, noise, and poor quality thinking and information system. So that's a simple trade-off. Um, Technology is great. It makes our lives easier. Listen to the wisdom of Solomon for that on digital surrogacy. But sometimes we don't know what we lose when we begin to embrace our technologies too much. And that's why I like Twitter. Um, Twitter gives you a rush of dopamine. So there's something you can do. You can easily teach good thinking for you know, some dopamine. But as Huxley saw it, people will come to love their oppression to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. So that's just a bonus. And then, finally, finally, drum roll. Yeah. The thing, my, I think one of my biggest moments of the year was having my blog visited a lot. My WordPress website visited a lot by people from Twitter when the discussion on incest broke out. So I think a few weeks before that, I released a blog post titled The Case for Incest. I think the case is summarized into three. The case where there is no God, um, the no reproduction case, and the uh, global warming case. Uh, I think I forgot. I forgot what I wrote. But the case for incest. So when someone said something controversial about incest, my blog came to the rescue, and people went reading. So please get me right. I'm not, to, I'm not here to say incest is great. I made a case for incest on the grounds of rationality, making an argument for incest to declare that if we're being rational, that using rationalism or rational framework, incest can fly, pedophilia can fly. I've not done the pedophilia one yet, though. But, uh, and people did read and we have a case. People have cases against incest, but it's a case they cannot articulate. I think that was the whole purpose of the blog. Well, I have come to an end. Thank you very much for listening to Busy Minds Podcast. Remember, don't take down the fence until you know why it was put up. Remember, everybody is a philosopher. You should read to make sense of the world. I hope to come 
next year 2022 on this podcast to be more sophisticated you know have more sophisticated discussions i think one of the reasons that makes it hard for me is that i don't like talking to myself this monologue is getting tiring so i'll get my equipment and get people on this podcast we're going to talk we're going to trash out topics it has been an enjoyable year as a blogger podcaster commentator a dilettante yeah dilettante and um an armchair philosopher thank you for always tuning into busy minds podcast even for two months while i was away i discovered that my audience the you know the number of plays kept increasing people kept listening and you made it possible i appreciate you for every journey for every step of the journey you have been great and uh, if you are publishing one thing or the other i want to know your thoughts thank you see you around and merry christmas and a happy new year i'm out